Turn with me this morning, if you will, back to Genesis as we continue our study. Genesis chapter 10 this morning. Genesis chapter 10. We'll go from chapter 10, verse 1, to 1126. 10-1 to 11-26. Remember that New Year's resolution some of you made? This year I'm going to read the Bible all the way through. Remember how many of you didn't make it past Genesis 5 with all its genealogies? Well, I suspect that even of those who made it through Genesis 5, many more didn't make it through chapters 10 and 11. For here we face a seemingly endless list of names. So this morning I have a special treat. For you who never made it past this point because you couldn't read all the names we're going to read them here. I know this is a long section, and I can't pronounce the names any better than you can. But folks, if God saw fit by his Holy Spirit to cause Moses to write all this down exactly the way God wanted it, and then if God saw fit to preserve this for over 3,000 years now, preserve it through centuries and centuries without printing presses, where someone had to tediously hand copy all these names. Preserve it through desperate times of persecution when tyrants determined, vowed that they would wipe this holy text off the face of the earth. Preserve it through thousands upon thousands of long days and sleepless nights as translators gave their very lives to give us this text in their own language. If God saw fit to do such great things to put this text in our hands, we are not going to just skip it as if it means nothing, as if it were just an inconvenient interruption in the story. We are at least going to try to understand what it is that God intended to say to us. But before I just read it, rather than just drone on through such a long text without any understanding of what it is we're reading, this morning I want to explain a little bit up front what we're going to read and then read it as we go and talk about it a little bit. These two chapters, from chapter 10, verse 1, down to almost the end of chapter 11, verse 20, down to verse 26, these two chapters form one Toledote section. You remember that's how Genesis is divided. After the first chapter, well, up to chapter 2, verse 3, the first little bit, the creation account, the rest of the book is divided into ten sections. And each one of those sections begins with this little Hebrew word, toledot, which, remember, is translated here, the account of, or the generations of, some translations have it, or as we suggested, it, it kind of means, whatever happened to so-and-so. And so in this case, chapters 10 and 11, this whole toledot section tells us the account of whatever happened to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah's three songs that we talked about last week. Now within that larger section, almost two chapters, there are some other divisions. Chapter 10 is clearly one unit. It begins and ends with a very similar statement. It's kind of like bookends that tell us, okay, this is a unit. But chapter 10 is just an introduction for what's coming in chapter 11. The first nine verses, a familiar account of the Tower of Babel. We'll talk about that. That actually, by the way, happened 
before chapter 10, or at least in the middle of chapter 10, as far as the chronology is concerned. And then the last half of chapter 11 picks up kind of where chapter 10 left off, and there we have traced the genealogy of Seth, the son of Noah, all the way from the time of Noah up to the time of Abram. Now all this has two truths, as I understand this text. It has two great truths to teach us. So let me tell you the first one, and then we're going to read a bit. <clears throat> the first great truth, which is, is taught to us in the whole of chapter 10, is this. That God made us one human family. God made us one human family. <clears throat> That's what we're going to see in chapter 10. As we read, notice that this is not technically a genealogy, though when we first read it we say, oh, another genealogy. It's not technically a genealogy. It doesn't say so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he begat so-and-so. It doesn't read like that. Instead, this is what we would call a table of nations. This traces the connected origins of many kinds of people, many different people groups. And what is striking about it all is that they all come from the same place, from one or another of three sons of Noah. We see that in verse 1. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. And then it goes through in three sections, <coughs> the sons of Japheth, verse 2, the sons of Ham, verse 6, and the sons of, of Shem, verse 21. And then we get to the last verse, and we see it again. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. <clears throat> In other words, here's the account of how three men, the sons of one man, populated the nations and created the nations of the world. In other words, God has made us one human family. Well, let's look at what nations come from each son. <clears throat> First of all, let's read about Japheth, verses 2 to 5. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. Those are the sons. And now we get into the grandsons. The sons of Gomer, that is the grandsons, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togamah, the sons of Ethan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Ketim, it's not a son, that's a people, Ketim, the Rodanim, from these the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by the clans within their nations, each with his own language. Tells us this happened after Babel, each with his own language. And we're not told very much about the sons of Japheth. Quite a short account here, the shortest of the three. But uh, as I studied this table of nations over the past week, which has been a totally confusing study, as you, as you read all kinds of different people trying to figure out who all these people are and where they all went and what that all means and what the connections are between these names and names that we know, um, as, I, as, as I studied that, though, I did learn that this tells us a lot about the nations that came from Japheth. So just briefly, here among the descendants of Japheth, we have Gomer. Gomer's family, we know, settled north of the Black Sea, and then tended to expand and migrate to the west, 
And so do we find traces of Gomer in, uh, in Europe, in, in, in Germany, for example. Magog, Tubal, and Meshach, they also settled to the north. Magog is often identified with the Russians. Uh, Meshach and, uh, and uh, Tubal, uh, the father of the Turkish, of, of, the, of the Turks. Tyrus, another son, became the peoples that populated Israel, uh, Italy and later became at the heart of the Roman Empire. But quite different than that, Madai didn't migrate to the north and west, but migrated to the east and became the father of the Medes, as in Medes and Persians. And then the other son, Javan, migrated to the west and became the father of the Greeks. And as verse 5 points out, these people then all migrated throughout the maritime world. So that the descendants of Japheth have been called the Indo-European nation. The Indo-European nation. These are both people of European descent and, Euro- and people of East Indian, percent, uh, 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 East Indian uh, descent. You didn't know that you were related to those East Indians, did you? Our language is an Indo-European language, closely related to Sanskrit, for example. Uh, we're connected. We are sons of Japheth, part of God's one human family. Well, the second section begins at verse 6 and goes down to verse 20. Here we have the account of the descendants of Ham. Let me read it. The sons of Ham, he lists four, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. And then he talks about their descendants, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabatah, Ra'amah, Sabatekah. The sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it was said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Resen, which is between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Mizraim was the father of the Ludites, the Anamites, the Lehabites, the Naphtahites, the Pathrasites, Kaluhites, from whom the Philistines come, and Kaphtarites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgasites, Hivites, Arachites, Sinites, Avardites, Semarites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clan scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Generally, the uh, sons of Ham here uh, uh, migrated to the south and to the east. Here's what I was able to identify of Ham's uh, descendants. Cush, the, the first son here, Cush is the Bible's name for Ethiopia in Africa. Uh, Mizraim is a, a name used in the Bible for Egypt, also in Africa. Put is, or Put is identified with, with is Libya, area of North Africa, west of Egypt. 
so that these three sons, these first three sons of Ham, um, their descendants began to populate the, the continent of Africa to the south. But Canaan, the son who was cursed, remember we talked about him last week, did not migrate south. Canaan's descendants, listed in verses 15 to 17, that uh, more familiar sounding names perhaps to us, uh, the, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, those people we hear about other places in the Bible, the sons of Canaan, and one of the sons of Cush then gets special mention, for he did not migrate south, but he actually went to the east. That's Nimrod. We find his account in verses 8 to 12. We'll talk about him later, but Nimrod founded Babylon. The uncertain question here is about the origin of the people of Asia. It appears that they too were the sons of Ham, although there's some discussion about how exactly uh, uh, that happened. Uh, some, uh, there is some evidence that the Hittite Empire uh, migrated uh, to the east and became uh, the, the beginning of Asian nations. There's some cultural similarities between what we know of the Hittites and what we know of Oriental culture. Also some evidence that Sin, a descendant of Canaan, uh, migrated to the east and became uh, uh, the, the, the beginning of uh, Asian cultures. In fact, we still talk, uh, we still use that kind of language. We talk about Sino-American relations. What do we talk about? Chinese-American relationship. A sin, a descendant of um, Canaan. We don't know for sure about that. But once again, these scattered descendants all the way down into Africa, uh, out to the east, the land of Canaan in the Middle East, all of these were the descendants of Ham, who's one of three brothers, the son of Noah, there's no escaping. God made us one human family. Well, the final section of chapter 10 is verses 21 to 32. This traces the descendants of Shem. Let me read it. The sons, Shem, sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Afraxad, uh, Afaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Meshech. Afaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. Talk about Babel, I think. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almadad, Shelah, Hazar, Baveth, Jared, Hadoram, Uzal, Dekla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. These were the sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Sefer in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. And then we read verse 32 already. Well, the descendants of Shem mentioned here are, are what we call Semitic people, the Semites. They have more familiar Bible names. Elam is the ancestor of the Elamites, well known in the Old Testament. Ashur was the ancestor of the Assyrians, another well-known biblical nation, nation that gave Israel a lot of trouble. Lud was the father of the Lydians, mentioned by Josephus, the Jewish historian. Uh, from Aram came the Arameans, also known as the Syrians to this day, causes Israel trouble in the Middle East. And from Afaxad came the not a notable descendant, Eber. See that in verse 21? Sons were born to Shem, 
Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Well, now Eber's really way on down the list there. He's a grandson, a great-grandson. He's mentioned again in verse 24, a foxide was the father of Sheba, Sheba the father of Eber. What's so special about Eber? The name Eber is the root word of the word Hebrew. Heber is the Hebrew people. <laughs> and sure enough, his descendants lead straight to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the family which God will be dealing with throughout the whole Old Testament. They are Hebrews, the nation of Israel. Before we get too far and before God singles out Abram for special dealing, he wants us to understand that these people too are the sons of Shem, who is the son of Noah, for God has made us all one human family. As Derek Kidner comments about this chapter, not every nation known to the Old Testament is enrolled here, but enough are present to make the point that mankind is one. For all of its diversity, under one creator. Why is that important? What difference does this make to us as we sit here this morning? Well, why does it matter if we see the human race as a unity or not? Well, because we do not have the luxury of caring nothing about the rest of the world, which is so common in our culture. The Sikhs down the road, the migrants out picking strawberries in the fields this week, the Chinese filling up Vancouver just across the border, these are our cousins, like it or not. Their needs, their hopes, their dreams, their problems, their family struggles, their successes, their failures are really not that much different than ours. As David Adkinson writes so well, all human people, even of different national and cultural identities, as chapter 10 itself accepts, are of the same origin, have the same dignity, belong to the same world. This undercuts all human div divisiveness based on nationality, culture, and race. However good, however rich national and cultural diversity can be, it should never be allowed to cloud the more fundamental fact that all human people share the same nature, breathe the same air, live on the same earth, and owe their life to the same God. Or as the Apostle Paul proclaimed in Athens, we read in Acts chapter 17, from one man God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places they should live. That's what we learn in Genesis chapter 10. God made us one human family. But before you just take that truth now and run wherever you want with it, there's another truth, a second great truth here in this section. 
And that's this. The world will never enjoy unity except in Christ. The world will never enjoy unity except in Christ. If chapter 10 paints this picture of a unified world, all the nations descended from three brothers who are descended from one man, wonderful, unified family of nations, well then what happened? How did the world become so divided? Well, that's the point of Genesis chapter 11, 1 to 9. It explains what caused the nations to scatter to the ends of the earth. Let me read it. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make brick and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not, so that they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there of all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. History is full of the attempts of men to unify the world. Unfortunately, since man is sinful in all of his imaginations, all these, all these attempts seek unity without God at the center. And here in Genesis 11, we have man's first great attempt at that. Actually, this story begins with, as is often the case, with one single leader. His name is Nimrod. We read about him back in the last chapter, chapter 10, verse 8 to 12. Three times there he was called mighty. Derek Kidner points out that Nimrod looked out, looks out of antiquity as the first of the great men that are in the earth. Remembered for two things that the world admires, personal prowess and political power. But Nimrod, though a man admired by the world and a strong and mighty man of personal prowess and political power, Nimrod was not a noble leader. If we examine closely the language used of Nimrod, it seems to indicate that when it says he was mighty before the Lord, if we compare how that phrase is used other places, we learned that it means not that God was impressed with his might, but that he was in God's face with his prowess. He was an affront to God with his might. Yes, he was a hunter, a mighty hunter, but apparently he was a hunter of men known for his fighting prowess and his ruthlessness, as well as his political empire building. Donald J. Barnhouse paraphrases the section on Nimrod in chapter 10 with these words. He says, Nimrod began to be a mighty despot in the land. He was an arrogant tyrant, 
defiant before the face of the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty despot, haughty before the face of the Lord. And the homeland of his empire was, according to chapter 10, verse 10, Babel. Babel. You see, wicked, rebellious empires, nations that dare to defy God, often begin with one arrogant, rebellious leader. Babel did. His name was Nimrod. How many more examples are there throughout history? But it wasn't just one leader. It wasn't, this isn't just about Nimrod. Somebody followed him. And the picture that we have of Babel, painted here in chapter 11, especially verses 3 and 4, is one of enthusiastic participation by the people. The project itself was uh, uh, to use their great new technology, not to go out and pick up a bunch of rocks and try to somehow stack them together, but we're going to make bricks that are uniform and have a certain size and shape, and therefore we can build much bigger buildings and much greater buildings and much more stable buildings. We're going to use our technology to build this wonderful city with its great tower in the middle. Well, we have great cities with great skyscrapers that they probably never dreamed of. What's so bad about that? Well, look at what's driving them. Look at what we're told of their motivation as they build this tower in Babel. It's driven by a selfish, man-centered desire to make a name for themselves. We are going to build ourselves a great city. We are going to make a name for ourselves. This wasn't an attempt to build something for God's glory. It was an attempt to build a man-centered empire and a trophy to that man-centered empire. But it's God place to make a name for himself, not man. Notice also that their motivation was security. We read in verse, at the end of verse 4, so that we will not be scattered over the face of the earth. They're afraid of being scattered. Already before they were ever scattered, they're building this thing to keep from being scattered. How would that be? Well, God told them to scatter for one thing. But also, when people began to, begin to abandon God, who is the center of life, their center of life begins to disappear. We begin to be afraid of being alone. We begin to be afraid of being scattered, afraid of being unconnected, for indeed we have been disconnected from our head if we're disconnected from God, who's the center of all things. And so, what do people do when they're afraid of being disconnected? Well, they go to the big city. <laughs> Still happens. There, something's happening. There, there's lots of people. There, I'll build my little world. That's what's happening back here in Babel. The people sensed the, the threat of being scattered for their center was gone. And so they determined they'll not scatter. They'll not go forth and multiply and fill the earth. They're going to congregate together and they're going to fill their own needs with their own kind of community that will serve us and will make us great. 
And there's undoubtedly a religious motivation here too. But they set out to build a tower that reaches into the heavens. I think probably they weren't thinking they could build a building big enough to get all the way up to wherever God lived. If they did that, they probably would have started on a mountain somewhere, not on the plain of Shinar. But somehow this had a religious impact. This was not just a building for some functional use. Dr. Jim Boyce reasons that this was a great tower, this was a great monument that had a place of worship atop of it. And there had a representation of the heavens, which he thinks was probably a zodiac, which is something that came from that time and place. As such, it would seem to be a wonderful spiritual symbol representing the lofty majesty of God and a place of worship there at the top. But in fact, it was counterfeit religion being used as a political tool for Nimrod to build and unify his self-centered, man-centered empire. Kidner summarizes the project with these words. The primeval history reaches its fruitless climax as man, conscious of new abilities, prepares to glorify and fortify himself by collective effort. The elements of the story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. The project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement, very much as modern man glories in space projects. At the same time, they betray their insecurity and they crowd together to preserve their identity and control their fortunes. But folks, it's all in vain. For the world will never enjoy unity on man's terms. Never know unity apart from God. And so in verses 5 to 9 of Genesis 11, the Lord responds, Ironically, it says that God has to come down to see this great tower that they have built to reach into the heavens. God stoops down to take a look. <laughs> I remember the very first time I flew in an airliner. I was down in Southern California, and I took off. And of course, there are just so many buildings and so much that's man-made. And as we climbed out, I was amazed at how totally insignificant everything looked. <laughs> very quickly. God stooped down to look at this grandiose thing they were building. And God confused their language so they couldn't understand each other and work together anymore. And we're not told how God did this. But trust me, the God who made man's mouth, the God who made man's mind and center of uh, communication, the God who created language, Certainly, it's no problem for him to confuse it. And that's what he did. We're not told how long the scattering took, but it certainly would make sense that increasingly people would gravitate toward those they could understand, get off by themselves, enjoy their common language. But how long it took and however God did it, it was effective. And the table of nations in chapter 10 is the evidence, bears testimony 
to how far and wide this human family got scattered, as does the diversity of people in our own day bear testimony of this scattering. For you see, though God made the world one human family, the enjoyment of that unity, of that community, just for its own sake, is not God's agenda. God would rather have division than unified rebellion. And so he divides. And he will continue to divide. For the world will never enjoy unity apart from Christ. One more thing about this incident. Look at the end of verse 6. The Lord says, If they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, at first reading, we might think, boy, that sounds like God might be threatened by these people. What are they going to do? Maybe they're going to take me on. That certainly is not true. God's not threatened by anyone. On the contrary, God is protecting man from himself here. Listen to uh, David Atkinson's explanation. He says, there's not only judgment in this divine action, there's also preservation. Earlier in Genesis, in the story of Adam, the sending out of the garden was both judgment and preservation. And the mark of Cain was illustrated, this illustrates the same thing. There was judgment, but there was also pre preservation. So too, the story of the flood spoke of both judgment and preservation. And the same is true here. For the Lord saw that the attempt to build the tower was only the beginning of all that people would do. And so in order to prevent things from getting worse in Shinar, God's judgment in dividing the community is also a restraint. You see, it is in grace that God will not allow the world to enjoy unity on its own terms. That's God's grace. Oh, dear people, we live dangerous lives. We live in dangerous times. The lessons of Babel have been long forgotten. Arrogant leaders dare to do anything in our day. Anything to build their own empires. And people excitedly jump on the bandwagon. And it seems that nothing whips up enthusiasm as much as some grandiose plan to unify all mankind into some one, some great worldwide empire. Think of the organizations that work toward that end, even if they work toward good things. United Nations, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, NATO, and, 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 and a host of other organizations that have that agenda somewhere. In my mind, one of the most blatant examples, one which we ourselves might get caught up in, one which you probably will disagree with the minute I say it, is this. Every four years, the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games. You watch it critically next time. It is the hope and promise of world unity.
a religious promise. All under the pantheon of pagan deities. With a blind faith in human achievement. Next Babel. Look elementary. But here, God makes it crystal clear that the world will never enjoy real unity except when they know it in Jesus Christ. You may say, I didn't see anything about Jesus there. Well, that's because we didn't finish reading yet. Let me read the last part of our text. 11.10 to 26. This is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Sheba lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And after he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Reu had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Shug, Reu lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Sarug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now I know that isn't very interesting reading. But do you see what happened there? We are taken from the time of Noah and his sons, from the events of Babel and the scattering of the nations. We are taken by way of this genealogy all the way forward to the time of Abraham. Abram, as he's called him. Now we're told almost nothing along the way. But that's no accident. For the hope that we seek coming out of Babel the hope that we seek for, for the unity which man cannot find on his own, that will only be revealed when we get to God's covenant promises to Abraham in chapter 12. All the people on earth will be blessed through you, God says. So why waste any time talking about all their attempts at unity in between? The text just puts us on the genealogical escalator and takes us right to the top floor so that we can get to the point of where the hope comes from. Of see, that promise is the promise of ultimate unity, blessing on the whole world. And it is a promise which is fulfilled in the coming of Messiah Jesus. For as he comes as the only mediator between God and man, the reconciler who made peace through the blood of his cross, and as he does that, he also breaks down the dividing walls between people. And as he makes us sons and daughters of God, he makes us brothers 
in Christ. In Jesus, by faith in him, we become part of a new race which will populate the earth for all eternity. And in case there's any question about how wonderfully effective God's unifying plan will be, when it all began to happen, and when Jesus had finished his saving work on the cross and his resurrection, and ascended into heaven, God sent his spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, God reversed the confusion of Babel. Here's the hope for unity in the world. For everyone suddenly began to speak the same message of the gospel with one voice in all these different languages crossing the ancient boundaries of language which God had used to separate the world. That's exactly what God promised he was going to do through the prophet Zephaniah. When he said, yea, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And that's what God did through Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And the world's not been the same since. For now men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and nation, descendants of Seth and Japheth and people from every culture and every language on the face of the earth are being joined to Jesus. And when the Lord joins them to himself by his spirit, he also joins them together with his one perfectly reunified race, his church, the body of Christ. Oh dear people, this is what we ought to be getting excited about. It sometimes doesn't appear to be very effective for the unity. It doesn't appear to be too effective, but this is the true hope of unity. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. And how hopeful should we be about this? Well, we labor in hope because the results are absolutely guaranteed. The promise is that one day, We could mark it on our calendars if we had the date. Absolute certainty. One day, every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess together that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, dear friends, do you fill your life with grandiose things? with friends and work and fun in hopes that the empty, lonely, centerlessness of your life will somehow be satisfied? Are you looking for that connection, that relationship which will put your life together? You're not going to find it. You are not going to find it in this fearful, fallen world. Not in the greatest city on earth. Not in all the best connections on earth. This world is a barren place for the souls of man. All the lonely people, where did they all come from? You'll never find that central, unifying, invigorating something in this this man-centered effort to make a name for yourself. It's 
not to be found in a better education. It's not to be found in a more perfect political solution. It's not to be found in material wealth and comfort. It's not to be found for us individually. It's not to be found for us corporately. Yes, God made us one great human family, but we will never enjoy that unity. You will never enjoy that unity. That satisfying sense of community anywhere except under the rule of King Jesus. Today I call you to abandon your trinkets, to lay down your weapons, to surrender your self-serving rebellion. Today I call you to get on your knees and bow at the feet of this mighty King, this Lord of Lords and King of Kings, this risen Savior, to surrender yourself to his service, trusting that he will make you whole and grant you fitness to serve. And as you do, he promises that he never turns such desperate, repentant sinners away. And you Christian brothers and sisters, let me challenge you for a moment. God has placed in our hands more resources, time, education, money, technology, leisure time, more resources than any people who have ever inhabited the earth. Not only that, he has caused us to know, I know you know because I just told you, to know that in spite of the fact that God made us one human family, the world will never enjoy that unity except in Jesus Christ. You know that that's true. You knew it before I said it. We know that, don't we? So why do we waste our precious resources on such petty little things? There's a kingdom to be advanced, brethren. The time of God's unifying work in the gospel is upon us. He has made us ministers of reconciliation. God's words, not mine. And sure enough, in our day, the church of Jesus Christ around the world, often with very little education, very few resources, and almost no money. Nonetheless, the church of Jesus Christ is quietly advancing like a mighty army in every nation and people around the globe. We heard about Jeff David was here talking about events in Latin America talking about Korean missionaries coming to Latin America, talking about Latin American missions going to Muslim countries. God is advancing his eternal kingdom. It's the most exciting, the most satisfying thing going on on the face of the earth. But you wouldn't know that looking at the American church, would you? But we're busy building fancy buildings and amusing ourselves. We're trying so hard to be culturally relevant and politically correct. While our great king, our risen Lord, with his ragtag band of disciples from every nation, is taking possession of the earth and building a real community. 
Not one city, but in the eternal city of God. Turning the world upside down quietly, unnoticed by many. Reversing the effects of Babel. Without our help. For we're busy investing the resources so we can retire comfortably. Beloved, it's time to rethink our priorities. Amen. Oh, dear Father, we live so much in this present moment. We see our lives and we deal with our little problems. And we have to do that. Thank you, Lord, for these ancient texts, which are so hard for us that we don't even want to read them. We certainly don't want to labor over them. And yet, these texts, that when we will listen, point us to grandiose things that you are doing in the face of the futile plans of man. Lord, as we chew on these things and try to sort through them this afternoon and in the days to come, take this wonderful seed of your word and use it to transform the way we think, to change us, to grow and bear fruit in us until we delight to be part of your people, to be advancing your kingdom, to be using everything our hands touch on our jobs, in our homes, in our community, everything our hands touch, our education, our money, our opportunities, everything we have, to be using it for this great purpose of what you're doing in this wonderful day in which we live. Well, give us vision, Lord. Without vision, people perish. In Jesus' name, amen.